0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today in our postmodern conservative series I am joined by Michael Anton. He is Professor Anton at Hillsdale's Washington DC Graduate School. He was Deputy Assistant Anton when he was working at the NSC in the Bush and Trump administrations. He is also known as Decius his pseudonym for the incredibly influential and, dare I say, infamous essay, The Flight 93 Election, the most important pamphlet of the 2016 or 2020 elections. Mr. Anton has also written a sequel for the 2020 election, The Stakes." We will talk a bit about that as well. He is also a chef. He has cooked a dinner of state at the White House for the French president, no less. He is also a dandy and he is known as Nicolas Anton Giovanni, the author of a very well written and hilarious book called The Suit. And he also worked in the incredibly disreputable industry we know as finance. I invited Michael Anton on the podcast to talk about Machiavelli. He is the preeminent Machiavellian in America. He has just published an essay at American Mind on Machiavelli's spiritual warfare. And these are the kind of troubled, turbulent political times that Machiavelli specialized in. So without further ado, Michael Anton, let us talk politics, America, Machiavelli. You could look at America now and and despair over it, but you could also look at it for the same reason as a time fit for foundings of all kinds, for all sorts of enterprises. I suppose people are most familiar with enterprises in technology, but it's not obvious that it's the only way to think about enterprising in America now. And I thought this would be the right way to introduce both Machiavelli and your recent work on the matter. On the one hand, there's this new spiritual tyranny over the minds of men. And on the other hand, that also means that it's a great time for people to endeavor against it. I hope that's not something people have asked you to talk about to death. I find it an interesting matter And about the interview itself, I run a small nonprofit in Hollywood and the American Cinema Foundation. And I also talked to one of my friends who runs this thing called I Am 1776. So they will be able to get your thought across to a couple of tens of thousands of people over the next couple of months. And they're likely to be very online people. So whatever, this is the other reason I thought that whatever ideas you have that you'd be willing to share about transformations, what you'd encourage people to do or to look at doing where they might see danger and where they might see opportunity. And at the same time, of course, encourage people to study Machiavelli if they're going to write the the online, right? The young men, especially like to say very harsh things, but they've never thought in any coherent way. And so perhaps learning from Machiavelli is the best.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, if we start there, Machiavelli's harshness is always very, very calculated and controlled. So, what I worry about, and I, th- I said this more or less explicitly in the piece, is the types who, you know, very online, who like to shock and who say some witty things, and even underneath the shock, say some insightful things, but end up diluting their own influence and perhaps jeopardizing their own careers. You know, a lives may be too strong, although it may. Get there. That is to say, look, as of now, the regime isn't going to come and just take you and put you in jail, although it does that. You know, if you walked into the Capitol on January 6th, it will find you and put you in jail. It's probably not yet at the stage where it's going to do that simply for tweets or posts. It may get there. Who knows? But your life could also be, you know, in jeopardy, not of immediate death or cancellation. But, you know, if at age 25 you go to such a degree of imprudent rhetoric that you find it's impossible to maintain any kind of institutional affiliation or earn a living you know yeah you're not going to be shot for that instantly but it is imprudent and it does in a way jeopardize your life if you can't make a living if you can't eat one of the reasons Machiavelli appeals to the young is because he knows that they're inherently more rash than the old and rashness is akin to courage but rashness isn't courage, right? Rashness is, a, if we're going to be an Aristotelian now for a moment, rashness is a, an excess of courage. It's a defect. And I think there's a tendency amongst the young, this is what Strauss means when he says, which is not the best taste, meaning a taste for rashness and a, and a belief that courage is pusillanimity. To hold back one's rashness out of prudence is inherently cowardice. There's a sense of that from certain young people. And I'm, I'm trying to you know give them a little advice as, a, as an older guy with gray hair. That's not true it is possible to be prudent and courageous at the same time in fact it's probably impossible to be courageous without being prudent courage without prudence ends up being rashness which ends up harming you and also look if to a certain cast of young who says you know if you care about what happens to yourself you're not really down with the program you're not trying to do anything well in fact you're harming your own side you're harming your own team i've known people who have who i'm friends with or had been friends with i think have made real contributions who then go out and say stupid unhelpful things and it's a gift to the left to be able to say well you have associated with x person who said this and that ends up harming all of us so if you can't do it to protect yourself you should be prudent to protect your friends
0: yeah the times call for daring but people have to learn this we have to dare well Daring yes. by itself is not enough. It's very tempting, both right. because it's it's tempting to the young and because uh, it's how modern things work. We always look for change, and that requires daring.
1: I think I said it's in the article, and I say it to friends all the time, is, look, there's no point in charging enemy machine gun nests when you know you're going to get shot to no purpose. It is very brave, right? But courage without purpose, courage without an end, without that is to say an end in the sense of an intended result, is rashness, is foolishness, is worse than imprudence. So, yeah, you know, you could say, well, I'm going to spew X, Y, and Z rhetoric at A, B, and C, you know, senior regime figures, get yourself destroyed and say, well, wow, I was really brave. But it was also incredibly stupid. You destroyed yourself. So you've taken yourself out of the game when, you know, our side can use all the talent it, it can get. And now all the people you've once associated with are going to have to deal with that forever. And people are going to say, well, didn't you once know? this person and that person, well, yeah, well, why doesn't this reflect poorly on you? They will do that. And yeah, okay, you can say it's unfair, you can complain about it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, my advice is, please try not to give the enemy ammunition. They're strong enough as it is, they don't need our help, nor should we be in the business of helping them.
0: Yeah, I think one way to look at this is that there's a coupling of two forms of irresponsibility in this sort of rhetoric. On the one hand, people feel that, as you say, They're not going to shoot you. You're not going to jail. This is not Soviet Russia. So I mean, just run your mouth. And in a way, of course, rights to free speech, you should run your mouth. But there's another form of irresponsibility there. If you feel that you can't really be part of an enterprise, if you feel that you don't really have a future, maybe you feel America doesn't have a future, then why not run your mouth? Maybe desperate, nihilistic even, courage is all that's left. And so I think that from this lowest level where you feel we're all safe. It's fine. There's no danger from the government. To the highest level, where you feel that we're all doomed anyway, there's, uh, there's no in between. But from this lowest level and this highest level, it looks like you should be running your mouth, that running your mouth is the only thing to do. And so there's a kind of spiritual danger here that Machiavelli has a name for, right? You talk about the, the dangers of leisure and yeah. the peculiar cruelty it leads to. And this is also why I thought it's very important for people to read how spiritual warfare would be done by somebody who thinks before he speaks. Machiavelli has this unusual power of not only saying shocking things, but making shocking things happen, so to speak. He is not merely a talker. There's a reason his reputation is, in a sense, very bad, but in another sense, never going away. It's not possible to find another modern philosopher and perhaps Any other philosopher that people immediately react to, if they know the name, they know that there is danger there because there is power there. Machiavelli gets things done. He discloses things that lead to success. Presumably, that's what's missing in the anti-woke. Maybe coalition is not the right word. The possibility of an anti-woke coalition.
1: There's a lot missing from them, some of which I raised, some of which I didn't. I'll start with the one that I did raise, which is Machiavelli plays a long game. He doesn't publish his books until after he's dead. He leaves them to heirs, literary executors, essentially, who then put them out in one case four years, in the case of the Discourses, and in the case of the Prince, five years after he's dead. So he's not even going to be around to see the reception or what impact his books may or may not have. He has no idea what his writing, his spiritual warfare may accomplish, if it may accomplish anything. And he, you know, I'm pretty confident that he went to his eternal rest, not thinking he would be up there looking down, watching it all unfold. No way to prove that, that that is to say whether or not he believed it, but I think that's what he believed. So his books were kind of parting gift to humanity. Well, take this and do what you will with it and we'll see what happens. I asked the question in my piece, do we have that kind of time? I maybe should have spelled this out more because I know that there are a couple of people, they assumed that I said, yeah, don't worry about it. We can wait 100 or 150 years to, to, to start to turn this around. Um, they thought that I made an equivalence with Machiavelli. I, I raised that as a question. And I think my own, uh, my own conclusion, tentative conclusion, is we don't really have that much time. So somebody, which means we have to be even more careful because s- some of us are going to have to be able to uh, affect real change within our own lifetimes, and that's not going to be that's not going to be particularly easy. The other question is, you know, this is bigger, which I didn't really raise in the piece. What is the end state that, let us say, the anti woke coalition, you know, the pro Western anti woke coalition seeks? And I don't think we've really figured that out. I mean, I know what I think it is, or at least what I prefer, and I've had this argument with a couple of people. Let us call them one poll. Of those who are on my side in terms of having the same enemies, but well, I guess I've had this argument with sort of three categories of people, um, uh, who are who are on my side in the sense of having the same enemies, but not but where we differ about the end state. One is the kind of quasi-monarchists or the techno-monarchists who associated with Curtis Yarvin and people who love his writings. They have an end state in mind. Another are the paleoconservatives who I think sort of implicitly have an end state in mind, even though. I don't know that they never state it. I, would, I think I could summarize what their end state would be and why I disagree with it. In fact, I'm writing a piece right now about exactly that. And the other of those around the famous internet figure, Bronze Age pervert, whose book I reviewed in the Claremont Review of Books, I guess about two years ago now. And I think he has an end state in mind. My, my question for him which we got into once in a written exchange, and he didn't really answer. And in fact, he said, I'm just not going to answer it. But is, is the stated end state that he has so far proffered, which I criticized as kind of LARPy and unrealistic, is he mean that seriously? Or is it it rhetorical? And he didn't say. So if he, you know, the sort of vision with which he closes his book, high piracy and men of valor living at the edge of the world, is that's really what he thinks we ought to be striving for? Or is that just a rhetorical device to get the youth stirred up or something. If it's for real, then I have some serious criticism of it. I don't think it's very realistic, and nor do I think it's particularly desirable. If it's rhetorical, I, I think I get why he's doing it, but then I've, then the question remains, okay, well, what's a, what's a serious end state that we could come up with? So the way I sometimes put it to people, I think I've said this in print, I'm pretty sure. If not, I'll say it now. Whatever happens to the current regime, and I, I'm, I'm not convinced it has long to live. This is another place where I differ with Curtis who has said to me on on a podcast that, oh, he thinks the present regime can go on for 100 or 200 years. I think that's not possible. 50 seems to me like a long time. And given its incompetence and ricketiness, I'm starting to think 10 is a long time, but who knows. Whatever happens, there are going to be lots of people, tens, hundreds of millions of people alive on the North American continent who will need to reorganize, self-organize, and form some kind of political association. On what basis are they going to do that? That to me is the question of the future that I've tried to address in writing, and I'm still thinking through and trying to address in writing. So, and I do think Machiavelli can be a useful guide to that. He's not my ultimate guide. At the end of the day, the circumstances that he was trying to overcome, I think, differ from ours. And I just have different metaphysical and moral and religious presuppositions than he does. So I did get some pushback to the spiritual warfare piece by people who share my moral, religious, metaphysical principles. How how can you possibly take advice from a person such as this if you believe X things, which either means you're mistaken in taking advice from this person, or you don't really believe the things that you say you believe? Okay, the, the former may be true. The latter is definitely not true. I still think there can be value even for someone such as me, who believes in natural right, more or less as Aristotle defines it, can learn from from Machiavelli. If We're all finding ourselves in a post-collapse situation. And and for whatever reason, I expect this not to happen, but for whatever reason, the world comes to me and says, Mike, tell us how to reorganize. I'm not going to say, well, we're going to start with Discourses, Book 3, Chapter 1 on sensational executions every 10 years. I'm not going to do that. Um, But there's something you can still learn from him.
0: Yeah. And I think you could say that the more interesting, the thoughtful people on the online right, have a lot in common with Machiavelli, if if only in partial ways. Bronze Age pervert does sound like Machiavelli. He seems to be telling you, be Cesare Borgia, be a condottiere, be a great man of spirit. You will conquer, you will achieve things. Don't worry about how many people you need to murder on the way. You will be applauded for your success because really everybody wants some peace of mind and they'll pay a high price for it willingly. You will, that is to say, be honored for your ruthlessness. Don't let morality get in your way. High piracy. Machiavelli reminds people that everything starts with violence. You want your own piece of land. You want your own peace of mind. You will have to violently secure it and occasionally maintain it. And since people no longer are satisfied with the social order, this thought naturally recurs. And there is very little to speak to it at least there is very little to speak to it in a taste that young men will listen to that's I think what one per- pervert understands yeah. and why in a sense as you say he can't answer the question how serious is his rhetoric to to answer that question I can't didn't say his can't
1: power. I said he, well just to clarify well, I think he can' not he, can't could answer for it. he didn't answer reasons, it not... and
0: he won't answer it right exactly but yeah uh, he but knows that's he because knows he understands answer. it to destroy the power of the rhetoric its effects will no longer matter if he answered It's
1: certainly he he has something in common with Machiavelli which I, I said explicitly in the piece right which is they deliberately calibrate their rhetoric to appeal to the young or specifically to that taste in the young which as Strauss says is not the best taste and so I don't have a following among the young in that respect because you know I write like a what I am, a 51 year old college professor normie who believes in natural right, and to, to some 20 year old kid utterly dissatisfied with the putrid state of the regime for good reason, right? He just he finds the kind of thing that I write boring and out of touch. And so I understand that there is a danger and there's a value to doing what he's doing. Or well, let's just get it back to Machiavelli, to what Machiavelli did. You, you have to understand that, that you pay a price in reputation for that. I got criticized by somebody for this, for just pointing out that. I think that Machiavelli deliberately sacrificed his name for what he thought was a good cause. Strauss makes great hay of Machiavelli's use of Fabius. So there are, there's a family of Romans called the Fabii. They, there are many of them at various points in Roman history. Livy recounts the exploits of many of them. Strauss illustrates how Machiavelli takes all of these Fabii and without explaining to you what he's doing, kind of molds them into one Fabius in the discourses who is meant as a stand-in for himself as the founder of new modes and orders the, the book literally the discourses literally ends with praise of Fabius reordering the city of Rome and Strauss says if you connect them all together you know there's a there's a Fabius who enters the Seminian forest in book two chapter 33 and so on it's a different person but it's all meant to be a stand-in for Machiavelli and what he's doing and how he's doing well I said I, absolutely true all of that and then Machiavelli makes a contrast which Strauss draws out between Fabius and Decius at the famous battle of Vesuvius, which is in Livy book eight. And it's in recounted in discourses, book two, chapter 16, which Machiavelli calls, if I get the quote correct, the most important battle the Romans ever fought in any war with any enemy. This is the This is the famous battle where Decius has to uh, sacrifice himself, and his partner is not a Fabius. It's it's Manlius Torquatus, who ends up winning the battle. And Strauss makes a contrast between this Decius and also his son, who performs a similar action later, you know, who sacrificed themselves versus the Fabius, who preferred the slower, more deliberate assault and saved his impetus rather for the end and therefore survived the battle. You know, and Machiavelli, being careful in his rhetoric and also just taking the precaution of publishing his books posthumously, spares himself and so can be compared to Fabius. But I I think, and Strauss makes it deliberate, but he gives it away without giving it away by saying, he compares Machiavelli to Jesus in the sense of saying, you know, this is an unarmed prophet. Machiavelli famously says in Prince chapter six, all the armed prophets conquered and all the unarmed ones were ruined. Well, okay that's a pretty blaring mistake in the sense that it doesn't take much thought to realize, well, there's at least one unarmed prophet conventionally understood who succeeded. Now, of course, Machiavelli means that even Christ was unarmed in the conventional sense, was armed in the spiritual sense, and therefore was not an unarmed prophet. But it leads one to believe, well, if this unarmed prophet succeeded, what is Machiavelli if not an unarmed prophet in the same sense? He has no army. He has no physical hard steel weapons. He has only his, his words. Um, so he, he deliberately compares himself to Christ, or that is to say, Strauss shows how Machiavelli compares himself to Christ in that sense, leaves it to the reader to, to connect Christ to Decius through the act of uh, self-sacrifice by one's own death on behalf of one's people, and my supposition, uh, which I said in the piece, and I had said before in the preface, too, a little book that I published called After the Flight 93 Election, because I had been criticized pretty roundly. It's like, why did he pick this pseudonym? Anyway, your readers may or may not know, I wrote some um, pseudonymous pieces in 2016 under the pen name Decius. And then people thought, well, this is just some guy, some Roman who got himself killed in a battle. This is dumb. Like, why did Anton pick this name? And Strauss explicitly tells you that Machiavelli takes as Fabius his model, he implicitly, he doesn't draw it out, but he implicitly tells you that he takes also Decius as his model, and the reason is that he knows that by writing these books he will be known forever as the, the teacher of evil, that's in the very first sentence of Strauss's thoughts on Machiavelli, and so he does make a sacrifice, he sacrifices his name. In somebody, some rather pious Straussian, and I, I say that in, with all due respect, I, I prefer pious Straussians to the impious Straussians, and there are plenty more of the latter than there are of the former. Some pious Straussians said, you know, uh, you know, Anton's waxing poetic about Machiavelli's sacrifice is sort of revolting because Machiavelli was a bad person. But here I'm I'm with one particular impious Straussian, and that is Heinrich Meyer, who wrote a tremendous book called Political Philosophy and the Challenge of Revealed Religion. It's basically a two-part book Part one is all about Strauss's thoughts on Machiavelli, and part two is all about Rousseau's social contract. And Meyer makes a strong case that at root Machiavelli is a philosopher, no less than Plato or Aristotle, that Strauss absolutely saw this, that the purpose of thoughts on Machiavelli is to vindicate that claim and explain it. And therefore, Machiavelli did make a real sacrifice, because even though his name will come up in the company with Plato and Aristotle, I can't do better than than Mansfield. In his introduction to his translation of The Prince, he says, you're holding in your hands the most famous book on politics ever written. But I have to correct that immediately by saying it's not merely the most famous, it's the most infamous, right? So his name will be attached to infamy forever. And that is a sacrifice he made in his own mind for philosophy and for humanity. And I don't think that's a ridiculous point to make, despite some of my critics finding it kind of laughable and odious.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Machiavelli is the first and perhaps the only philosopher to make his name as a criminal or a friend to criminals. And there were many philosophers before in some sense, but none of them did that. Hobbes was called the monster of Malmesbury, but he was insistent on law and the viathan. Yeah. His reputation does not hinge on bloodthirsty conquerors. So that's indeed part of the problem. You can tell people to read Machiavelli, they'll like it, but it is much harder to tell people, and perhaps above all, it's harder to tell young people to, to, to read Machiavellian and learn from him. That it takes the kind of thinking you would put into any serious teaching. And so aspects of the Machiavellian teaching always emerge, but never put together, so to speak. There are parts. There's a bloodthirsty rhetoric that invites you to spirited action on the promise of glory. There is also, as you pointed out, this notion of techno which is also a Machiavellian notion that really what counts is acquisition. Really yeah. what counts is understanding that everybody's the same. Everybody's out to get something. Some yeah. succeed and some don't, but they all have that in common. And one of the typically Machiavellian or shameless things to say, a man will love his patrimony more than his pater, more than his father. Yeah. After all, if you kill a man's father, now he forget. can come into specifically... the
1: property. He will forget the death of his father sooner than the than the loss of his patrimony. So Yeah, you can because he's getting rid dad, of his but, father,
0: now he gets the property.
1: Right. You can kill a guy's dad. Well, he'll be mad. But if you take the farm, then you have a problem. Then you have a permanent enemy out to get you. So And don't after do that.
0: all, do we not see now a generation of young men who feel dispossessed, incapable yeah. of acquiring property and therefore incredibly furious?
1: Yeah. And who are told by the regime, this is your fault and you're worthless. You know, you should be in mom's basement or, you know, I mean, whatever complaints young men have that are not only not heeded, listened to, they're dismissed, said to be not serious or not real, and then they're counterattacked for it. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I, I put another piece up on American Mind last night called That's Not Happening and It's Good That It Is, A Quick and Dirty Guide to Regime Propaganda, of which I I list seven of their most common tactics. And one of them I call the enmity counter accusation, which is the regime can sort of harass and bully you to its heart content. As soon as you just put up your arms to block an incoming punch, they will say, you are divisive and an enemy. How dare you? You see this everywhere now. So they, they make it all but impossible to have a debt-free college education to get a job, to build up savings, uh, buy property, get married. The more difficult they make this, the more dispossessed and angry young men feel. And if a young man so much as mentions that this is a problem, the furies will come down on him. I know you're privileged. Your type of people have been privileged for hundreds, if not thousands of years. How dare you make one single complaint about anything? You know, I mean, All somebody who's 25 has to do is imagine what life was like for their older brother or their father or their uncle and see how different it is for them. And and I think it's only natural that they're going to say, something went wrong here and this system isn't working on my behalf anymore. Um, And for the crime of noticing that, they get brutally savaged, at least rhetorically so far. Um, That's one of the, the regime's favorite tactics is we get to treat you as badly, as shabbily, as shamefully as we want. And if you so much forget complaining, if you so much as notice and say aloud that you notice what we're doing to you, we will, we will bring the furies down on you. As I put it to, and this, this line I'm rather proud of, so I will quote myself here, which is a, is a kind of shamelessly self-indulgent um, thing to do. But I said, uh, every punch in the face must be rationalized by the victim as a massage. Uh, You could use caress instead of massage the same point. I wasn't, I toyed with it. I wasn't sure which word worked better. And I went with massage at the end, but yeah, as they're beating you, you're supposed to say, thank you. Or, you know, that famous line from animal houses, the, the, the pledges are all on all fours and getting smacked with a paddle and every, with every smack they're required to say, thank you, sir. May I have another.
0: Yeah, so that's. Uh... I know you're
1: a movie guy, so I assume you'd uh, you'd know that movie. <laughs> yes, indeed. So <laughs> not it... that it's a great classic, but it is. it is kind of a great classic. I mean, it's not up there with you know Citizen Kane, but as uh, as raunchy comedies go, it's, it's
0: it may be the best one. Probably, yeah. It was a great success. Probably yeah. for that reason. So... Uh, Of course, that was a time when this sort of humiliated young man got, if not good president, at least these sorts of movies to somehow get even. Now, as you say, that's not possible. There's this passive aggressive attitude that won't allow people even to state that they have complaints, even though those complaints are all very real, incredibly public, and millions of young men suffer from them. And the only good news is, you know, we implied in what you're saying about the rhetoric of the regime, it's full of half measures. They humiliate these young men, but they are not destroyed. And so the oligarchy creates way more enemies than it can deal with.
1: Yeah, it's not destroying them yet. And I wonder, you know, Curtis, who's a friend, and I know him, and anytime I say something even moderately hopeful, his response is always, that's COPE which is a new term that I've used. I, I don't know if he invented that or if it's one of this younger slang that he picked up on. He's about my age, but that, that's go- So let's say one were to read Machiavelli literally and try to operationalize all of his advice. Leo Paul de Alvarez, a brilliant teacher at the University of Dallas who wrote a commentary on The Prince, which I've read hundreds of times, <laughs> says that a lot of Machiavelli's most harsh advice is a trap to see who's paying attention because if you tried to do everything he said as he says it, you will end up dead. It won't work. He's deliberately over harsh. And part of that is a test in a way to see which readers are fools and which are not. But let's say you were to read it and try to operationalize exactly what he says to do. It's not enough to have the intellectual sense that, okay, I understand this and I'm willing to go out and do it and I see the justification for it. To perform those kinds of deeds requires a certain type of heart and soul that most people don't have. I know that I don't have it, right? So if I were suddenly made the prince and I decided to make the prince my Bible of how to rule, and just to take one example in chapter three, I always point this out to my students, he rather unobtrusively, but distinctly, if you read it carefully, he says, if you take over a neighboring country with the similar laws and customs, all you have to do is, Keep most of the laws the same and make sure you eliminate the line of the prince, which means if you think it through, it means kill the babies, right? If the prince has a nine-month-old child who somebody could later try to install on the throne as the legitimate heir and you leave that kid alive, you're making a mistake. So this, of course, is obviously a direct influence on Lenin and the communists in 1917, but like I know personally, I don't have the heart to kill the babies. So if it, that's what it takes to be the prince, I can't be the prince. My point is the regime is evil. The regime hates us. It wants to do harm to us. How many people in the regime, though, really have the heart and soul to kill the babies? I, I'm not so sure. I know some folks, some folks I know personally, some folks I just read or encounter on the online right who think, oh, they'll, they'll do it. Don't kid yourself. They'll do it. Maybe this is COPE, but I'm not sure they have the heart for it at least not yet.
0: Well, you know, you have to take some comfort in the knowledge, which is certain that your enemies too are mortal. You can hope that they have limits too and some failures. Yeah. So, that, I actually
1: think though, as I, I said in my book, I'll plug it now, the stakes that came out in 2020, September 1st, 2020. I think it's pretty evil in and of itself though to cut people out of the financial system, to make them unemployable, to ostracize them, to sort of make them... I think I said free-range zeks, so they're sort of like concentration camp inmates but not locked behind a fence. They can wander around freely, but they can't do anything. They can't be employed, they can't be part of an organization, they can't use a whole lot of services, they can't be in contact with people that's actually devastating to the human psyche and the human soul. And I think it in part drives addiction rates, suicide rates and other things. And if their rationale is, well, you know, we've left you alive. So how bad could it be? I don't take a lot of comfort from that. I still think what they're doing is evil enough that that it deserves resistance, even if they're not actually locking people up or killing them.
0: Yeah, certainly. It seems like a certain use of freedom has slipped from saying that, Well, people can live their lives the way they want to, it's America, to saying something like you can make incredibly cruel and catastrophic economic and social decisions, and then people just have to put up with it and deal with it without any help. So you could say it started from something like a personal freedom that says I am not responsible for 300 million other people that have to get on with life, to saying something like the elites are not responsible either for the rest of the people or for what they do to them. And right. at that point, it becomes indeed incredibly cruel. And yet it is hard for people to say, no, That this is different. This is a very different and, and very wicked thing to do.
1: But I, I had this conversation yesterday with some friends of mine, most of whom I think you know, if not all of them. And I asked the following, is there a point at which the regime's cancellation and exclusion regime or system will work in our favor. By which I mean, and I quote Strauss again from Thoughts of Machiavelli, where he says, the highest art has its roots and the highest necessity. Granted, we're not talking about art, but if they really get to a point where they're saying to first a few hundred, then thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then eventually millions of people, right? So we're seeing them test this out. You get deplatformed from social media, they demonetize. You know, if you make your living this way, they demonetize it so you can't make a living. Um, they've started putting they've started putting people on the no fly lists. You can't travel. The lockout of the financial system has also begun, but it's in its earliest stages. But let's say they really ramp this up, they kick tons and tons of people off of all forms of social and other media. Then you can't get a bank account anywhere. Maybe it's some little local community bank, but any bank with a you know. Presence of greater than a handful of branches, you're locked out. So you can't make a living. You're forced to live in the all cash economy. But then they eliminate cash. So if you don't have a credit card and a banking system and an electronic payment system to work, you can't actually buy anything. Well, what are you supposed to do then? But they leave everybody alive. Well, the, the harder they make it for people literally to eat, the more incentive there's going to be for people to build these parallel structures. And a lot of my friends are saying, uh, uh, in particular, you know, Matt Peterson and some of the guys who are doing this thing called new founding their point is we're going to ha- we got to build parallel structures now we got to be ready for it and i think they're right in that they have foresight the problem that they will face is that people won't feel the necessity until it starts to pinch them so when the regime really starts to make it difficult or impossible for tens if not hundreds or thousands or millions of people to literally eat you're going to see parallel structures being built and in that sense is the regime inadvertently making it easier on us. Well, in a sense, like they're forcing us to do what we ought to do by prudence, but we'll only do under the press of necessity. I'm not sure that that's wrong. I think it might be right. And we're not at that stage yet, but that's where the direction they want to go is, right? If, If you listen to their rhetoric, what they would say is, You know, if you have ever harbored view X or said word Y or associated with person Z, then you are a moral degenerate illegitimate and you have no right to access to any of these services. So their logic leads to basically all deplorable Americans, to borrow Hillary Clinton's famous term, should be locked out of key institutions of society which will ultimately make it very difficult for them to make a living and simply support their lives, at which point they'll have to build parallel institutions. And then the regime will, if it says, well, it's immoral for you to even have these parallel institutions, then the regime will have to use its power to stop the parallel institutions. But at that point, the mask will truly be off. And what they're essentially saying is, we want you to die. We're not going to kill you, but it's sufficient for us to just make conditions such that you starve to death. Now, I know that if anybody listens to this, I don't mean it that way. A lot of people listen to it, but it's like my enemies, and I have many of them listen to this. They're going to say, Anton, that's unhinged rhetoric. Yeah, well, look, read my piece on the guide to regime propaganda. Or just take this famous quote from Lenin. What is, how does it go? Who says A must say B? There's an inherent logic to what these people think. They want to stop short of stating certain conclusions because they sound alarmist and they might alarm people. But the logic points in one direction. And if, if you think people are morally illegitimate, their very existence is morally illegitimate so that you you are not only justified in locking them out of the financial employment system, but morally obligated to lock them out of the financial employment system, then aren't you also justified and morally obligated to prevent them from creating their own employment and financial system? And, and doesn't the logic of that inevitably lead to these people don't have a right to make a living, so therefore they don't have a right to eat, therefore they don't have a right to exist. Uh, it, it sounds insane, but that's where the logic of their position leads. And what one of the things that I notice in spades about 2020-21 is lots of left-wing rhetoric that I had been seeing since my college days in the late 80s and early 90s that people said is just blowing off steam it's just crazy rhetoric it will never be operationalized nobody really means it well it really came to fruition in a huge way in the last two years and it shows that whether people meant it seriously initially or not the people putting it into practice today certainly mean it and they take it seriously whoever says a must say b
0: Yeah, the situation we're in, we have to put these two things together that you mentioned. On the one hand, prudence, and on the other hand, necessity in the sense of hunger, in the sense of being afraid the security state is spying on you and arresting people and so on. Or as you're saying, denying you business, denying you banking, denying you all these parts of wherewithal and life. Prudence, as you say, you can derive a syllogism, you can follow the consequences, you can draw out conclusions, but nobody's willing to say them them outright, so it doesn't have any conviction. It doesn't carry conviction. But on the other hand, if you wait until people suffer in their bodies, well, each body is particular, everybody will feel alone, everybody will feel weak, and it might be too late to react. These things have to be put together before it's too late. Foresight is not enough, but pain is not enough either. They have to come together somehow. And that's, again, a reason to read Machiavelli, who reveals that prudence and suffering in your body are the same thing, necessity. Just like if you don't eat now, later you'll be hungry and that's a pain in your body that will teach you. Sometimes the body is its own mind, pay attention, but Uh, you should learn to think ahead. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by, on the one hand, reminding people that they can feel humiliated, right? One of the big things, as you were pointing out about the double talk of the regime, the passive aggressive attitude is that people have come to accept all sorts of humiliations, all sorts of inflicted damage as though it were a cosmic dispensation. It's not somebody doing it to you. It's not elites in politics or in finance or in tech destroying your rights or denying you your rights. It's a cosmic dispensation. You just have to accept. Well, you have to remind people that they're not merely being denied the right to free speech or to property. They're being slapped. Yeah. humiliated without that feeling yeah. of humiliation people will not stand up for themselves and that is indeed my, a great use of Machiavelli to remind people that they should feel hum- humiliated and that they should f- look for a way to avenge themselves and defend themselves
1: my next my next project which I've begun but not completed and I'm hoping we'll have some help us in this regard is I'm, I'm writing a kind of parody pastiche of Plato's Republic called Beto's Republic or the woke Republic and the figure of Socrates is represented by a diversity consultant who has changed her name to Wokrates, that long Greek O. But it, and it's meant to be both a joke and serious. So if you know Plato's Republic, it follows the structure very carefully. It uses all of the famous tropes, all of the literary devices, the, all of the, you know, Every famous scene from the Republic, you know, the confrontation about justice in book one, the censorship of the poets in book three, the divided line, the theory of the forms, the allegory of the cave, the myth of her, they're all going to be in there. So on that level, it's just a, you know, it's a parody of a book that if you've ever studied political philosophy or philosophy, everybody knows and has read, right? On the other hand, it's meant to explain what the woke left, and the regime really thinks. As I said earlier, in our conversation, they don't always take their logical points to the end because if they were to state them bluntly, they sound horrible and alarming and they don't want, You know, as I said in my latest piece, um, if you're trying to boil a frog, you don't want to tell him the plan because if you tell him the plan, he might jump out of the pot. So they lie and obfuscate and hold back. So in presenting this, just like the original Republic, as a private conversation where no, no outsiders are listening, where they can be candid... I think I can tease out what they really want. So it's an exercise. And again, who says A must say B. I'm going to, have, I'm going to, I'm going to say B in this book out loud so that everybody can see it on the page. And I expect the, the response from the regime will be exactly what I describe in my latest American Mind piece. They'll say, nobody believes that. That will never happen. That's not part of the plan. And when we do operationalize it, it'll be glorious and you'll deserve it.
0: Yeah, this is something you deserve to be famous for, the celebration parallax. Uh, It's
1: catching on better than I thought. So this is something I put in my book, The Stakes. I thought long and hard about a name, and this is the one I came up with, which I realized wasn't great, but I couldn't think of anything better. The definition of the Celebration Parallax is the same fact pattern is either true and glorious or false and spurless, depending on who states it. So if you can be presumed to be in favor of the thing you're talking about, it's okay to say it. In fact, it's great that you say it. If you can be presumed to be not in favor of it, then it's terrible. So. The most famous celebration parallax is on immigration. When the right uses a phrase like the great replacement, they're trying to replace us. A conspiracy theory, not happening. Uh, a leftist writes an op-ed in the New York Times that literally entitled, we can replace them. That's great. Fabulous. I used the phrase once, ceaseless third world immigration. And I'm condemned and just savage for that one line. Joe Biden himself, the president of the United States, his quote, I think was, some, was a was, uh, Unrelenting immigration, man. I'm talking like a million, a million and a half people a year for years. He, those are his words. Everybody, big thumbs up. No problem. Same exact point that I made. I'm condemned for it. Joe Biden is celebrated for it. That's the celebration parallax. It's an outgrowth of something described by Rod Rehr. I don't know if you were recording then, but it's part of it. We talked about this, that who's now the one of the American fellows at the Danube Institute in Hungary. Dreher came up with this at least five years ago, maybe longer than that. It's called The Law of Merited Impossibility. And that reads, that will never happen. And when it does, boy, will you deserve it. And it came up about homosexual marriage. So a lot of arguments against it were saying, look, there's a there's a slippery slope argument. Like if if we allow this, then what's to stop, you know, you from forcing churches that say they're they don't believe in homosexual marriage from performing the services or a Christian from, you know, baking the cake for a gay wedding and this kind of thing. They said that will never ever happen. You're totally lying. You're making this up. But when it does, you'll you homophobic bigots will deserve it. And of course, it turns out to be exactly right. All the things predicted did happen. And when they did happen, the the left who said it would never happen says, well, you deserve it. So I I call these, I don't want to go over the whole piece, but I I call these three the holy, the unholy trinity of ruling class horse manure. So first is the law of merit and impossibility. Second is the celebration parallax. Third and related is, is a new coinage of mine. Maybe this will catch on. Maybe it won't. I call it the law of salutary contradiction. And that holds that that's not happening and it's good that it is. So the law of salutary contradiction kicks in once the law of merited impossibility has become passe because the thing that they said would never happen is actually happening, then you still deny it. So the most recent classic example was Tucker Carlson, maybe 10 days ago, two weeks ago, went on the air and said, I've learned that the NSA, the United States National Security Agency is spying on me. Immediately, the entire ruling class intelligentsia media apparatus came down on him like a ton of bricks and said that was false fake not happening conspiracy theory tucker's a paranoid liar within days and then the nsa put out its own denial i put it in air quotes which if you read carefully it was not a denial at all it just basically defined the term so narrowly that it says well we're not doing this very tiny little specific thing but we won't tell you what else we might be doing and then in a prestige media account on axios a website which is not as old a brand as the New York Times, but is, believe me, extraordinarily influential as a regime media outlet admitted. Well, in fact, it does appear that Tucker Carlson was trying to get an interview with Putin and the NSA picked some of this up. So, and then immediately the, the leftist regime hack Twitter mob, which had only a day or two before been saying that's not happening, immediately started saying, well, Tucker obviously was a Russian spy, so it's totally justified. And thank God we have the NSA to spy on Tucker. So that's not happening and it's good that it is. One of the reasons I wrote that piece is to explain the pattern, because once you understand the pattern, you start to see these things everywhere. Or as Strauss might put it, you know, there's a taxonomy to their lies, right? And once you can classify them, it becomes easier to see them and easier to see through them.
0: Yeah. And that's one task. You have to figure out what's wrong with this rhetoric, with these contradictions. They are elaborate. As you say, they may be involving contradictions or outright lies, but that doesn't mean they are not planned. They make sense together. And if you think through the rhetoric, it leads to something that's not merely rhetoric, it's politics. It really leads to a certain end state. And I hope that your parody or satire is going to go some way to reveal that. What is the damn thing that we should be worried about, that we are Are somehow worried about anxious but we can't quite put a name to it so we can't fight against it yeah it is a
1: precisely because as we were talking earlier the regime doesn't primarily rely on force at least not yet and my hope is it never will not that i can guarantee that but there are reasons to believe it never will i'm not sure that many people have the heart for that kind of bloodshed but let's leave that aside whatever the future may bring for now the regime's primary instrument of rule is propaganda. It's gaslighting, it's lies, it's censorship, or as I called it in my book, the megaphone. There's the narrative, the megaphone, and the muzzle. The narrative is the story that they want told, the pre-approved version of events. So the pre-approved version of events, for instance, in 2020 was America is a racist country. George Floyd was an innocent saint. There are no riots happening in American cities. And and to the extent that there are riots, that's another great example of the law of salutary contradiction. In June 2020, the, the media narrative was, these are all peaceful protests. There's no rioting. And all the rioting is justified anger. It's not happening. And it's good that it is. Right. Another example, maybe of the law of merited impossibility would be with that we're seeing in action right now is vaccine passports. We will never, ever install a kind of vaccine passport or a system of keeping track of people and travel restrictions based on the vaccine. And when we do, it'll be good because all you anti-vaxxers are insane conspiracy theorists. And now they're starting to talk about doing it. And they're just pretending like they never said it would never happen. Like six months ago, you people were saying it will never, ever happen. The same people are now saying it has to happen. It's essential and it's good. And, and only insane, irrational anti-vaxxers would be against it. So this is their primary instrument of rule. The narrative, the pre-approved story, the narrative includes the things that they want said. It also includes the things that they don't allow to be said. The megaphone is the means, the media through which they blast out the narrative, and what I call the muzzle, which is the use of social, it's the use of the regular media to simply not cover stories that, uh, that don't support the narrative. So little tiny events of no real national significance get blown up into huge national stories if it supports the narrative. So this is, I think, pre-George Floyd, but it kind of was a sign of what's coming. An insignificant argument between a woman and a man in Central Park in New York became national news because the woman was white and the man was black and she felt threatened and and she didn't, I I think she actually did call the police on him. Anyway, nothing happens. Nobody's arrested. She becomes national news. It becomes a news story even in Europe. She gets canceled, fired from her job, is now unemployable for the rest of her life. Even if the woman was a bore and unjustified, that's actually not so clear given the reports of what the incident were like. The man apparently did act a little threatened, speak a little threateningly, but whatever. It's still an insignificant, trivial episode in the lives of two people that doesn't deserve to be a national story, but because it fits the narrative, it gets blown up into a huge story, right? Meanwhile, all kinds of crimes take place every day. I mean, one of the great undercovered stories from essentially last spring to today is the enormous rise in urban crime in the United States, whose victims are overwhelmingly non-white people of color, especially black people, and it doesn't fit the narrative. The media will not talk about it. If you talk about it, you're denounced. Another great example of a story simply being uncovered because it doesn't fit the narrative is the opioid addiction and the decline in white life expectancy. So I can't remember their names, but two academics researched this and found like for the first time since the founding of the United States of America, l- white life expectancy had declined in the 2000s or something. And they went to every academic journal imaginable and could not get it published and were told over and over again. And were actually told they shouldn't have been writing about it. They shouldn't have been researching that. And when they finally got it published, they were resented because this, this story doesn't fit the narrative. You shouldn't be talking about this. So the muzzle works in both ways. It works in actual news, newsworthy events, trends, things that simply are not allowed to be talked about in the overwhelming organs of, in the media organs that overwhelmingly control news and information dissemination. And then it's simply the censorship that Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and others impose on users. I mean, that's just it's straight up censorship. There's no other way to put it. Not being libertarian. I find myself utterly unsympathetic to the libertarian argument that these are private companies and they can do whatever they want. I mean, yes, they are private companies, but in a sense, they're also public carriers that totally dominate information dissemination in 2021. And the Republican Party, in the person of Theodore Roosevelt, used to actually be against monopoly power and used antitrust to break up monopoly power in the interest of middle class, ordinary people, and also to a ascend in the interest of the state, because the monopoly power once upon a time was considered a threat to the legitimate state power controlled democratically by the people. One of the reasons why the state has no interest in breaking up or controlling monopoly power today is because the monopolies and the state are on the same team and they're in league. And so that the the state sees breaking up or doing anything to Facebook, Twitter, and Google and social media giants is essentially to harm itself. And the state is right (laughs) in that sense. I mean, they are essentially part of the same regime. I think that's a bad thing, but we shouldn't delude ourselves that it's not a thing.
0: Mr. Anton, I think this brings us nicely around to a conclusion for this interview. We have looked both at some issues in political philosophy or theory, but also in what it means to look at politics in a way that we could call Machiavellian. It's not a jaundiced view, but it is willing to see the ugly truths and to say the ugly things that are happening. We don't have to pretend that all sorts of attacks on freedom of speech and freedom of property. And all sorts of attacks on the ordinary people of America have to be accepted as justice. They aren't justice. They are the use of state power. And as you're saying, a quasi-state power in corporations explicitly, or at least implicitly, to destroy people's lives. If this is not injustice, nothing is injustice. The willingness to reveal these sorts of things and to change, therefore, how you think and talk about what's happening in America is the beginning of figuring some of these problems out, at least in those places where you can do something about it, which I suppose would be like our friend, Matt Peterson says, red states first, defend their attack from there, reestablish to some extent, this spirit of republicanism, which is the spirit of not taking your beatings, of being jealous about your rights. And of course, before you can fight, you have to know what you're fighting.
1: You know, it brings to mind two things. First of all, when you said, if that's not injustice, nothing is. That, to me, crystallizes an important thought. And it's why I'm not an East Coast Straussian and why I'm not a Bappian or a Nietzschean. I actually believe justice is real. It exists in nature. It is knowable to the human mind. Natural right is not an exoteric window dressing concept invented by Aristotle. Or maybe it is. I don't know. You Somebody can you know try to provide me an elaborate proof of that. But having studied it, to quote Machiavelli, with great diligence for a long time, I find it much more plausible than the alternative, which is that nothing, none of this exists, and there is no justice. And on the point about taking your beatings, Machiavelli very explicitly makes that point in the Discourses, Book Two, Chapter Two. That strength has been redefined as in enduring pain, enduring suffering, rather than avenging it. And I make this point specifically in the spiritual warfare piece that you know he Machiavelli says there's a there's an interpretation of Christianity according to virtue, which holds to a different way. Now that may be exoteric window dressing on Machiavelli's part. I leave that point open for the reader to decide. But I do say, and I think this is true, that if, Christian, if it is possible to interpret and operationalize Christianity according to virtue, as Machiavelli says, that solves the major problem that he diagnoses with his time. And it, I think it could solve the major problem diagnosed with our time.
0: Yeah, now we're stuck in a situation where the people are willing to scream against the regime have no audience among ordinary people and ordinary people whose rights are at stake and who are necessary if there's going to be any self-government left, they're the ones who don't want to see how miserable the regime is really being to them and what threats lie ahead. And if somehow these two things could be put together, if the people who have suffered because they're young enough to realize they're dispossessed, persuade the other people who are doing well off, or, or well enough and don't want to see the bad stuff, persuade them to listen, to realize that everybody is going to get screwed if this continues, then uh, there will be something like a majority coalition. The, those of us who are against the woke are conspicuous by our small numbers. And that, as you said at the beginning, is in fact quite dangerous, not just to ourselves, but, uh, but in a way to other people too. After all, to complain about the injustice of the regime If you also advertise impotence, powerlessness could encourage people to just take their beatings more, to just reconcile themselves to despotism and even tyranny, because they feel there's nothing you can do about it. So somehow the power that comes with numbers and with organization is necessary, not just the power that comes with shocking rhetoric and shocking insight. Hopefully, as you say, there's enough weakness in the regime and there is enough strength in the enemies it keeps creating to bring it down.
1: I think so. I, I just think there's also so many, what they're trying to do, what the regime is trying to do and trying to be is fundamentally anti-natural. If there is human nature as, as as you and I understand it from the books that we've read, then what they're trying to do is impossible and an impossible thing can't work. doesn't mean that it it's going to fall today or tomorrow, but it means that it, it ultimately can't work. It's already not working. I mean, America 2021 is Much more dysfunctional than the America of 2000, of 1990, of 1980. I mean, I grew up in an America that basically worked. I grew up in a California that basically worked. I now live in a country that I recognize, you know, almost by almost every metric, not every, but most key core metrics functions much more poorly than it used to do. And I think that's in part because the regime. It's operating against nature. It's operating on false premises and using faulty means to do something that can't be done. And that's just a thing that can't go on forever and so won't. It doesn't mean I know when it will end. And it certainly doesn't mean I'm recommending that anybody is, you know, to get back to an earlier point, charge machine gun nests. Don't do that. Be careful about what you do. Be careful about how you take it on. But the first step to resistance and surviving is ensuring that your mind is free.
0: Exactly. Nature does give you a certain hope. You shouldn't think that things you're against are magically powerful and they are permanent and omnipotent. That's crazy talk. They have their limits. They have their faults. Necessity works against them too. This should give people some hope and prevent hysteria. And hopefully they will fight intelligently. All right, Mr. Anton, thank you for your time. This was a riveting interview. And let's talk some more spiritual warfare another time. All right. See about Market and the American situation. Okay. All the best. Thank you.